Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Some kind of a ship down there. Report on the arrival of strangers from outer space. The aliens generating enough intrigue and maybe a little bit of fear in the viewer. Where are you? I know you're out there. Don't be afraid. Hello, welcome to Kill Count, the podcast that tallies up the deaths of some of your favourite horror movies. Every episode we tune in to another terrifying title in the pantheon of horror and try to guess how many kills occur within it. My name is Dan, I'm the Crypt Keeper this week and joining me as always we have the founder and president of the Gary Busey Appreciation Society, Ali Penelope. I need merchandise, I feel like I should be capitalising on this. You might run into some legal troubles. No, no, no. We also have Mike Ferratu. How do you like that, Mike? I love that. You know, sometimes I feel a bit like him in the morning at the moment on lockdown. So I think that's pretty apt. Just rising out of your coffin in the morning. Exactly. Just this spindly, shadowy figure making its way to the front room where I sit and work from home all day. I love that image. Today, we're going to be taking you all the way back to 1953 to talk about Jack Arnold's It Came From Outer Space. Yes, it came from outer space to fill the world with terror, to bring you unforgettable suspense. What was it? Where did it come from? Who were the all-powerful creatures it brought from outer space? And what did they want on Earth? This was the first in a series of horror sci-fi flicks made by Arnold and producer William Alland. Whilst they both worked at Universal, uh, the two were given a lot of freedom by Universal, which was quite rare at the time because distributors would rarely hire in-house producers. But they went on to make successful movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Tarantula, and Revenge of the Creature. All of these kind of films uh, were referred to as weirdies, <laughs> apparently. Uh, and a delicious little piece of trivia that we can kickstart our discussion with is that this is Universal's first ever 3D film. Did you know that? I did know that, only because the version that I watched this film with came with a nice featurette. When I watched it, I kind of suspected a little bit, just from the very opening of the film. It was just that explosive opening that I was like, huh, I wonder how people in 1953 first saw this film. In the astonishing realism of three dimensions, with objects coming right out of the screen, so real they almost touch. Before we get into the swing of it, I wanted to... First off, ask what your thoughts are on this era of studio-led, slightly gimmicky, 
political subtext laden horror movies from the 1950s. I have always been quite interested in them. I haven't seen many of them. This is, I guess, a bit of a gap in my knowledge in terms of sort of areas or subgenres of horror, these kind of extraterrestrial sort of space fear movies from the 50s. But I do think they're interesting, you know, how most of them are actually about, you know, fear of, of Soviets and communists and this kind of thing. I think they, they're all quite interesting to look back on in terms of what the world or particularly America was really scared of at this time. Absolutely. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. And I think when I think about the horror genre, and also to to really the same extent, the science fiction genre, and those two, of course, they overlap so frequently, this film being a great example of that. I think about how they as genres are probably the most reactionary of any genre to what's happening culturally, economically, politically at the time. And obviously, a lot of times that's American politics, but sometimes it's on a global scale. And science fiction as a genre existed prior to the 1950s. I mean, we talked about The Invisible Man in our first episode, and I think that that definitely qualifies as an early entry in the genre. But I think the 1950s is where we start to mold this idea of the science fiction film as a modern day viewer knows it. And I think so much of that just would not have been possible without it being a reaction to world global events, specifically the end of World War II and the beginning of the nuclear age and the nuclear arms race. So cinema, obviously, like it's a reaction to cultural events, but it's also, you know, the conversation, like these films, they exist to say something as well. So it's like this dialogue between entertainment and what's happening on a global scale. So I find it fascinating. And I think this film in particular is a great example of a lot of the facets of the 1950s sci-fi horror film being set up for the very first time. I couldn't agree more. It's fascinating if you if you like try to take a moment and imagine a world where World War Two didn't happen, the Cold War didn't happen, what the landscape of cinema, specifically in these nineteen fifties in America, it would be completely, completely different. We can go ahead with our guesses. Do you guys remember your guesses or do you need reminders? I think I remember my guess. I remember my guess. Always full of confidence when it comes to guesses in this podcast. <laughs> All right, Ali, Ali, you go first. You sounded particularly confident. I went with a nice biblical number. I went with seven, which upon watching the film, I uh, regret it. Yeah. <laughs> was there any thinking behind seven? Was it just a number? So I was basing it around my knowledge of other films from the genre, like specifically the one I'm probably most familiar with is, you know, the OG original uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And for that one, I thought, oh, there's tons of there's tons of deaths in that. And I felt this was kind of I didn't know that this was going to be as somber and as competent as a film as it was. And so I thought it was going to be a bit more schlocky. And I just assumed that there would be tons of deaths. Hmm. Mike, your guess was a little lower. Yeah, well, it was a bit of a stab in the dark. I went three. I kind of thought, similar to Ali, I thought this film is, is going to go one way or the other. I thought this could be quite a schlocky film that involves sort of mass destruction and there could be hundreds of deaths. Or it could be one of those quite low-key ones where there's barely any. And so I went for the latter and I went low. It just struck me, just look, hearing the title, that it might have been a little bit more of a, not family-friendly, but maybe less horrific than, than certain other horror movies in terms of its body count. Pretty on the money in the end, now that we, we've all seen the film. <laughs> we can jump straight into the story. And I think it's worth mentioning now and getting out of the way that the story is quite basic and linear. And 
I naturally gravitated towards discussing some of the things we've already brought up, which is all the extra textual happenings with 1950s America and the world in 1950s, politically, culturally, socially. So that will be woven in because the story really is thin. We start with an author and amateur astronomer, John Putnam, and his girlfriend, Ellen Fields, looking through a telescope at the Arizona night sky when a meteorite crashes. And after waking a neighbor who owns a little helicopter, the three fly to the crash site. I straight away want to flag something here. Was anyone else very uneasy when they got into the helicopter and the helicopter, it was like a convertible. It didn't have a roof. Yeah, it didn't have anything covering it. I know. I couldn't believe it. I thought this is the real horror right here. (laughs) Yeah, truly. I was definitely waiting for some sort of malfunction to happen. And no helmets. They weren't even wearing helmets. Exactly. (laughs) Hands down the most terrifying part of the movie. Definitely. So they head over to the crash site. Putnam approaches the crater and sees the entrance to an alien spacecraft. The camera goes into the spacecraft and uh, there's this really good like 10-15 second sequence where in total darkness we hear some creepy breathing and coming out of the shadows is a menacingly large eye belonging to an alien. Was anyone mildly creeped out or impressed by this little (laughs) sequence? I loved it. Something I quite like about movies from this era, there's just something really charming about them. I wasn't creeped out by the monster itself, but the music is incredibly loud whenever these aliens <laughs> appear. I don't know if you had this on my particular TV, I had to turn the volume up quite loud to hear the dialogue sometimes, but then the music was so overwhelmingly loud that I would always have to quickly turn it down again so that my neighbours didn't think I was dying or something with all these sort of screams and loud chords of music. I had a similar thing. Yeah. But it helps that the music was so great. Yeah. The music is phenomenal. I forget the instrument that they're using. What's it called? The tetrin? Uh, oh, the theremin. The theremin. Yes, the theremin. I think now in current modern film language, we would read the theremin and the way the score was created for this film as like your kind of hokey science fiction standard fare. But I think in 1953, it was really innovative and it was really the new modern sound. And I feel like it must have informed the films that came in the in the rest of the decade. Totally. It feels just quintessential, doesn't it, for this decade? I think if you think of the type of horror movies we were getting, this is exactly it. It feels like it fits it completely. It fits the bill. Even from that first five minutes, you get the UFO, you get the theremin music, you know, you get the kind of slightly shonky looking aliens. It feels exactly what you would expect of this type of horror. We briefly catch a glimpse of the alien. Not really, it's because it's kind of shrouded in darkness. And we don't actually get a really good long look at the alien at any point in the film. Like, I don't think it's on screen for more than maybe four or five seconds at a time. And I wanted to ask Mike, what do you think of horrors that tease the monster with little glimpses throughout? What does that do for the viewer? I think it's great. Usually I'm a big fan of that over showing the monster personally, because I think the best horror is the horror that leaves some of those images in your imagination, I suppose. And I think personally, some of my favorite horrors are ones where they don't show the monster. The big exception, of course, being The Thing, which we've discussed, which is one of the greatest movies ever made, in which they show you everything and tentacles and monsters and all sorts. But that's a very hard thing to get right most of the time. And so I think most of the time, the the smart way to do it 
especially if you've got budgetary constraints or whatever else, is to suggest your monsters through little shadows or little glimpses of them here and there um, and music and sound design instead to kind of do the grunt work. So yeah, I think it's I think it, it's usually the best idea. Yeah, and I think what you were saying about shadows is, is certainly the case here. I mean, it's certainly teasing the alien right at the beginning and it's generating enough intrigue and maybe a little bit of fear in the viewer I wonder as well if it is linked to uh, production and budgetary reasons that maybe even in the 50s they were like this is kind of weird you know looking at the alien design I don't know if this is going to hold up in 70 years so they decided to maybe not show it for more than five seconds I don't know if that had anything to do with it if they had enough foresight for that i do know actually amazing i think they were very much in the same vein as us and what you were saying mike in that teasing the idea of the creature and leaving it up to your imagination was the way to go i think that they ended up refilming and creating the creature design post most of the film being filmed and then they filmed a couple of these sequences that had the alien as we now know it jack arnold's original intention was never to show anything but i think once again, when you show that to a producer who says, but where's the creature? What are audiences going to think? It's kind of art and meeting, you know, the masses in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really interesting as well, looking at the sort of the genre and the way it's changed from the 30s to now as well, because we discussed The Invisible Man, which is kind of the early era of horror and sound cinema. And the universal monsters of the 30s were very much about showing the monster, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula, even The Invisible Man. There were lots of scenes of just kind of camera trickery where The Invisible Man would pick things up and run around and that kind of thing. And then I think in the 1940s, the trend started to change with people like Val Luton, who were making movies like Cat People, which I think we've discussed briefly, which was, a, you know, a film that had a very low budget and therefore its monsters, it kind of completely suggested through footsteps and shadows and light. And they were sort of some of the first films to do that. And now I think you can see that trend continuing on into the 50s. Before Putnam can begin to process what he's seeing, uh, a landslide occurs and completely covers the spacecraft. Uh, when the local sheriff arrives, Putnam tells him what he saw, but it's all dismissed as poppycock and a grasp for media attention. Over the following days, however, various members of the small community begin to disappear and are replaced with alien versions of themselves. Putnam realizes this and approaches one of the alien imposters and asks what they want. They reply that he needs to trust them and they'll soon be gone. So I'm going to play the B-movie card early, have a little interlude. I, I forget who is on duty. That's me. Amazing. Take it away, Mike. So once again, I've kind of slightly pushed the, uh, the description of B-movie, I suppose, with this one. But I thought it was quite an interesting film to recommend in light of this. And also just because it's, it's new. So this is a film that actually came out in the UK on streaming platforms just in the last couple of weeks. And it's a film called The Vast of Night. I don't know if you guys have, have had a chance to watch this yet. No, I have not. I have not. It's really wonderful. So this is available on Amazon Prime. And yeah, it's called The Vast of Night. It's made by a first-time director Andrew Patterson and it is in the style of a 1950s alien invasion movie it's a very very low budget film so everything we've just been talking about is quite apt really with this this is a first-time filmmaker with next to no budget who wanted to make a, a film in the style of 50s B movies uh, or a kind of Twilight Zone episode or something similar to that and it is literally just the story of these two people in this radio station in the middle of this little town in middle America and this UFO, well, they think this UFO has landed. 
but we don't really see it. We hear everything going on outside and we hear reports as people are phoning in to this radio station as these two characters who are stuck in this radio station are kind of trying to figure out what's going on and hearing everything coming over the airwaves. So it's a really, really good film. The dialogue is brilliant. I mean, in many ways, it's not a B-movie, but it's actually kind of paying homage to B-movies and particularly B-movies from the 1950s that dealt with kind of alien invasions and that kind of thing. It's a really good pairing, actually, with this week's movie. And it's just a really, really good film. So I would, I would urge everyone to check it out. It's called The Vast of Night. The Vast of Night. Nicely tied in as well with the 1950s aliens. Is it set in the 1950s? Yeah, it's set in the 1950s, exactly. So it is, it's really got that vibe, that kind of music. It's even got some theremin in there. <laughs> it starts off like grainy and black and white as if you're watch, about to watch an old movie or a sort of Twilight Zone episode. You kind of, you, you see it on a TV, black and white TV, and then it kind of slowly goes into colour as we go into the film. In some ways, it's quite basic because it is mainly dialogue driven, but the dialogue is really, really great. It's kind of super fast paced and and really kind of interesting. And then every now and then there are these amazing visual flourishes. There's this one moment where there's a tracking shot that literally goes all the way from one end of this town to the other. And it's real. There was no CG involved to this. I don't know whether it was on a drone or something, but this camera literally kind of veers all the way down through this town in and out of buildings, round crowds, and then comes back to this radio station again. So there's some amazing moments in it. I'm fully sold. I'm going to check that out. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jumping back in to It Came From Out Space, after a number of failed attempts to convince the sheriff of the alien's existence, Putnam finally gets him to believe that the aliens can imitate humans, but they're doing it for apparently benign reasons. The sheriff then raises the possibility that anyone even Putnam, could simply be an alien posing as a human. 
I think this is as good a point as any to properly discuss this Soviet paranoia and fear of the foreign menace which was prevalent in the US and reflected in the cinema of the 50s. I think the illusions are somewhat misaligned in certain areas with this film because the aliens are never depicted as violent or saboteurs. But it's more this notion of somebody living next to you, next door to you could be not what they seem. Ali, I've got I've got a tasty one for you. This is right out of film university discussion. Where do you stand on the politicalization of horror films? Are all horror films innately political? And do you ever think they're non-intentionally political or what a question. I think it has been commented on quite a bit. So I feel like I'm not exactly gonna reinvent the wheel in my answer here. That's okay. I definitely think that horror films, they get at the crux of what scares us. And so they feel like they're ripe for being reactionary and then conversely giving back to the world about what we're thinking about certain things. And I think really, actually, you could almost draw a line in the sand between different decades in the 20th century, especially around American politics, the 1950s being a great example of, as you say, the Soviet paranoia and kind of Red Scare stuff. But then I think about the 80s as a huge example of Reaganomics and Satanic Panic. And, you know, the most popular horror films of that decade definitely reflect family dynamics or they reflect Satanism and and things like that. So 100%, there is a lot of directorial intent, but equally, there's just as much stuff that then becomes, it belongs to the audiences once it goes out into the world. And then you also have the added thing of films being watched in retrospect and extra thoughts about what they were trying to say being added on decades later. So yes and no. I mean, it's it's far more nuanced than black and white. Oh, I would agree. Mike, do you have anything to add? No, I, th- I th- pretty much exactly agree. I think you could probably look at any horror film ever now with some sort of political context behind it, even if it wasn't intentional. I just think that probably most of the time, the horror film that a director is making reflects something that we as humans are scared of. And what we are scared of usually changes and evolves depending on what's going on in the world. So even if the director wasn't intending to make a film political, he was still probably trying to make a horror film scary. And what scares us is usually linked to something political. So yeah, I think there's, you could always find something there, no matter what. One thing that uh, always comes to mind when I'm thinking about this topic is in Romero's Night of the Living Dead, there's a lot of imagery that is similar to uh, a lot of the hangings and lynchings that were happening around that time. Romero was asked about that. I mean, is this intentional? And he said, no. But then theorists went on to say that, you know, Romero was probably looking at news footage of these occurrences, maybe daily, regularly, and subconsciously they may have permeated into his films. In a way, I think that's something that seems most prevalent with horror. And I love how horror films can be politically, whether it's obviously intentional or maybe like Night of the Living Dead, where it's just, as, as you said, Mike, it's culture and politics just finding their way into the films naturally not even directly or obviously definitely even when they have nothing political going on in the text itself a lot of movies from the sort of early 21st century i think you could look at as post 9-11 horror movies in some way or another even if they're not directly referencing that but horror films got a lot more violent and a lot more nihilistic around the early 2000s. And I think that is often a reaction to how violent and dark the general kind of news was at the time. And horror films were having to kind of up their game because of 
you know, real life was pretty much just as horrific sort of thing. So horror films got nastier and darker. And that's when we had things like what people call torture porn and stuff mm. like that. So yeah, again, even if it's not overtly reacting to something happening in the real world, there's always going to be a connection, I think. I feel like that's what makes this film so interesting, actually, because it could be boiled down to as simple as communist bad, Americans good. But I actually think that there's a lot more at play in this film. And so much of that, I think, comes because it's based off of a Ray Bradbury story. I think his ideas related to the Red Scare felt a little bit more nuanced here than these this like kind of black and white idea that was portrayed in so many of sci-fi films that came later in the decade. Yeah. The thoughts and the themes that are arising, even the ideas you were saying earlier, Dan, it just the creatures aren't inherently violent. And you know, if we wanted to make this a black and white story, they would have been. So I think that there's larger themes in this film, and that's why it's a really good one to discuss. If you're going to pluck some random sci-fi film out of the 1950s, I think this one has a lot more going on than the standard fare. Who are the bad guys in this film, really? I don't think it's the aliens. It's ultimately these kind of i mean it's an interesting that we're watching it this week really i mean it's 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 this mob of angry violent americans that just want to shoot and kill them and and that's it you know and and don't take a minute to kind of think about the consequences or communicate in any way so yeah i think it's like you said ali it's it's actually a lot more nuanced than it might initially seem now we see that the sheriff himself has switched to being very suspicious and volatile towards the aliens and you're right mikey uh gathers some townsfolk and heads out of town because he notices a suspicious looking guy in a car i guess identifies him as an alien imposter so they follow him they block the road he approaches this blockade they start shooting we've barely even mentioned this but this is the first death i'm going to count this as the first death because the poor alien imposter he's in a car that blows up so there we go aha Number one. There we go. He also goes into a boulder as well, just for good measure. (laughs) Why not? Yeah, yeah, there's no chance of survival for him. No. It's been established that the aliens basically got a flat tire essentially (laughs) i like that (laughs) they're stopping off on earth just to like steal a few cables whilst imitating humans and they just want to fix a spaceship and be on their way that's basically it they have no ulterior nefarious agendas other than that and putnam really is the only one that understands that and towards the end of the movie he's trying to buy them time so that this angry mob doesn't reach them and um, start a war that they will lose basically So given the fact that the spaceship is holed up in this basically mine now because of the landslide, Putnam says, don't worry, leave it to me, guys. Runs away and he gets some dynamite and he throws it down the mine shaft, locking them in and securing their escape. When I finished this summary of the story, I was like, is that it? I don't know. I felt a bit guilty. Maybe I'd swept something under the carpet. But in terms of story and then experience... Were you engaged throughout this film? Were there any moments where you thought it was a little slow and it dragged? Yeah, I mean, it definitely was. As we've said throughout, the plot was very straightforward. There really weren't any twists and turns. I was a little bit bored, I'll admit. As a viewer in 2020, it felt slower than what we'd expect from sci-fi films of today. But 
thinking about it in retrospect, I actually really appreciated the way it was shot. I mean, I obviously we know now it was like shot for 3D, but I think that the composition of the shots was really, uh, really telling and really powerful. And I also think that, you know, we said Ray Bradbury before, but there's some really like just great moments of introspective dialogue that just make you think about larger meanings of existence and our place in the universe. I think if you kind of settle in and take the time to appreciate those moments, you'll enjoy the film more than if you expect it to be this kind of sci-fi romp, you know, uh, schlocky romp. Absolutely. It's not one of these excessive genre movies that goes balls deep with aliens and stuff. And that thing we mentioned about the aliens not really being revealed, I think that's there's a touch of class to that. I mean, I was going to I was going to mention this later, but Plan 9 from Outer Space, it's kind of the other side of the coin to this movie and analyzing the differences between those movies even though they're so similar and they're from a similar time period there's a whole canyon <laughs> of difference between the way they're they're made and the way they're received by audiences yeah definitely it's a tricky one i i agree with ali i think it feels a bit slow in places and it's almost one of those films that is more thematically interesting than it is dramatically interesting i think the idea that maybe the aliens aren't the real baddies and it's all about kind of i suppose ignorance and miscommunication and that kind of thing is really interesting to talk about it doesn't necessarily make for a great fun monster movie and horror movie I would have liked it to have been maybe a little bit pacier, maybe a little bit more, you know, like you said, that, that, that moment at the beginning when they kind of tease the look of the alien in the dark and the shadows. I could have done with a bit more of that. I could have done with a bit more horror, even if it was just sort of B-movie horror. I really wanted to watch it in 3D. Like, <laughs> I, I really wished that that was an accessible way to watch it now. It's considered to be one of the best 3D movies ever made in terms of the subtlety and craft put it into the 3D experience rather than it being gimmicky. It sounds like actually there was a lot of thought put behind that. And I feel like it would have been really fun and a little bit of extra depth and meaning would have been gleaned from, from watching it in that format. I wonder how it works practically in terms of creating versions 3D and non, because I know some films, you have to watch them 3D full stop. You need the glasses. But I agree, yeah, I wonder if that would have you know changed my, my reading of the film or whether I enjoyed it more or, or less. I mean, we said at the beginning, there weren't too many moments where you're like, oh, that was obviously 3D. Like, I can't really think of any off the top of my head, apart from the title sequence, maybe. Is it all of those moments when the people are captured by the aliens and we kind of see it through that weird sort of helmet lens thing? I kept thinking they must be the moments that turn 3D. But yeah, you're right. It's not as obvious as some. I mean, this was a, a bit of a boom that occurred here at this at this point. This was the same year as the original House of Wax with Vincent Price, which again was kind of one of the earliest examples of a 3D horror movie. When you watch that now in 2D, it's so funny because there are so many moments that are just, you know, just suddenly the action will stop so that you can see this shot of this person with one of those paddle ball things, just kind of firing it at the screen over and over at the camera lens, you know, and you just think, okay, I'm sure at the time that would have been a fun little 3D trick. You know, a few years after this, we had the film producer, William Castle. He became so famous for these kind of gimmick driven horror movies. He made House on Haunted Hill and 13 Ghosts, The Tingler. And these were movies that were not just 3D, but he would implement things like uh, skeletons that would kind of fly across the audience or little electrodes in seats that would shock people at certain moments. And again, sometimes those gimmicks were more interesting than the films themselves. And I think the films do lose something when you watch them years later at home, not in the context of those kind of theme park additions that, that the filmmakers had in mind at the time. I wanted to close off to discuss a few points and gimmicks is one of the points. You're absolutely right. I, I remember learning about the Tingler at uni 
and it would they were trying to push basically for 4D experiences of horror movies and they would have like vibrating chairs and um these little robotic creatures things running across the floor during the tingler would you guys want to see a return <laughs> of that kind of stuff do you think it would just be a little lame or would you be up for it I mean, I saw Spy Kids 3D in cinema when I was like <laughs> 14 and it was pretty great. Oh, yeah. So I would be willing to bring that back. I mean, I feel like they tried to do that in like the mid noughties They tried to bring back 3D as a, as a gimmick and it pretty much failed miserably. It just didn't take off the way that I think people expected it to. But I also think it's like the way we consume media now is just so different and it takes so much more to shock and awe. You know, I think it'd be fun for like the fans like us maybe who would love to go to like a cult screening of this film and watch it in 3d and be frightened in that way but i just don't think that it would appeal to the masses the way it did in the 1950s yeah maybe technology is too advanced now that we're just not going to be that impressed by it i remember going to see a lot of the 3d horror movies that were coming out like you said ali in the in the previous decade my bloody valentine there was a remake of that in 3d there was a final destination movie in 3d there was a saw sequel in 3d i went and saw all of those and they weren't that great there was the occasional moment when a knife or something would come out of the screen and it would maybe make you jump but other than that you have to sit for two hours with these uncomfortable glasses on and more than anything it can it can just make you a bit sort of headachey and irate <laughs> so yeah i don't i don't know if it's the best uh, the best thing to bring back we'll discuss with the uh, head honchos of the industry and tell them no never again this other side to it about this contemporary public fascination of space travel and discovery that was tied to the space race with the USSR, of course. And we had films like this one, Invaders from Mars, and even The Thing from Another World that we mentioned last episode. And this is another big question. What would you say is our generation's space race that's being reflected in horror? Ooh. Oh, I've got many thoughts. Ali, do you, do, you, do you have anything you want to say first? <laughs> you take it, Mike. You take it. In some ways, we've come back around to a lot of the same horror that we experienced around the time of Night of the Living Dead and in the early 1970s. I think it's social, it's classist, and it's race. You know, I think movies that are made by people like Jordan Peele, I think Get Out and Us, these kinds of movies that are about the social and political class system, particularly in America, are going to be the sort of dominant horror movies that I think people will look back on on this decade and... and and kind of, yeah, see as a, a reflection of the times that, that we were living in, probably. And then there are also a whole range of other kind of popular horror trends at the moment, like we've got movies like Hereditary and Midsummer, these kind of slightly more highbrow, uh, what a lot of people sort of call elevated horror, which is a ridiculous label. <laughs> but yeah, I think overall it would be that kind of social commentary horror, Trump era horror, <laughs> even if you want to call it that. I think that's probably going to come through as kind of one of the dominant trends of horror that people will, will look back on and do you think the return of the author in a big way in horror where the the director's name is a big part of the marketing of the movie with people like yeah eggers and peel and Aster? do you think that that's coming back as well yeah they're our new craven carpenter landis hooper i think you know these filmmakers that all emerged at the same time in the 70s that all had something quite political to say romero as well they all kind of grew up in this same era seeing horrific things happening on the news about vietnam and watergate and nixon and then reagan and their movies were a response to that and i think like you said now we've got peel Astor, eggers even flanagan and i think these people are doing the exact same thing and i think people will go see 
these movies, not necessarily because of the story, but because it's the new Robert Eggers movie or it's the new Ari Aster movie. I totally agree. But the only thing I would add is I hate the discussion between high and low art. It's more nuanced than that. But I think on the opposite side of the rise of a new wave of auteurs and these really innovative and interesting films around, as you say, these cultural issues, there's also, for me, one of the things that I thought of was technology and its tie into horror films and how we've explored technology as schlocky as it probably has been in the last like 10 years of horror films. One of my favorite kind of thrillers from the last five years was Searching. It it definitely leaned into the how we're utilizing social media for every aspect of our lives. But then you have really schlocky stuff, you know, Unfriended and these films that are all taking place over webcams and things like that. And I just think that, you know, for every schlocky version of a film that has to do with social media, there's some interesting thought that goes into it as well. So I think as we continue to change the landscape of how we're communicating with each other in the real world, that will then impact uh, horror films as well. Yeah, you're totally right. I think Unfriended is another perfect example of the sort of thing that we fear in this decade. It's that technology. I guess you see it in a lot of TV as well. I mean, Black Mirror, I would say, is probably going to be the dominant horror as well of this decade, which perfectly taps into all those issues. And then also we do still have this kind of fun gimmick-led ghost train movie that people like William Castle were making. I think the movies of people like James Wan, The Conjuring Universe and the Insidious films and kind of the other side of the coin from these more highbrow auteur-driven or whatever you want to call them horror films are the kind of jump scare fests that people love and make all the money when they come out. So anything from The Nun to... Yeah, the conjuring to paranormal activity or whatever. I think that there's still a huge trend of those sort of running alongside all of the more political stuff. Going back to Unfriended, the second Unfriended movie. There's a second one? Yeah. There's a second one, but it's it's really... Mike, have you seen it? Yeah, it's really grim and dark. It's really different to the first one. And that one, the second one is the first movie in a while where I was like, man, this is contemporary horror reflecting current fears because the dark web scares me (laughs) it really does one last thing that came to mind as you guys were talking was that we're having this return of legacy franchises like dr sleep and it and they kind of go hand in hand with auteurs as well you have flanagan working on dr sleep and peel working on Candyman. they're coming back around i think they're they're quite a big part of horror nostalgia i suppose is always a thing that people love tapping into no matter what generation and yeah we're always going to look back as a generation of filmmakers that look back on the 80s as the heyday of horror probably us included in that way so yeah you get these filmmakers that grew up in the 80s that are going to want to bring back those kind of styles and those kinds of characters we've got blumhouse halloween there's two more halloween movies coming out and there's always talks about resurrecting friday the 13th and a nightmare on elm street that's always going to exist as well i think it's always a matter of when and not if with those franchises when they come back definitely we mentioned uh, earlier on about i think it was you mike about the alien pov shot when they're about to assimilate or take over or imitate i think the pov shot is is so juicy to analyze in horror this one i think must have been tied to what we were talking about about hiding the alien, but still making it an object of fear, uh, both in the world of the film and for viewers at the time. And I think this POV shot works well because it's a direct fourth wall breaking shot of the character looking at the audience and basically saying, you know, this thing is really scary. You can't see it, but I can see it. Trust me, it's scary. 
And I know that POV is used in many different ways, but in this way, I thought it was actually really effective. Did you guys have any thoughts on this? And also, what's your favorite POV in a horror movie? Oh, this is a good one because I, I thought I was actually going to bring up the POV earlier when we were talking about some of the larger themes around, Mike, you've said this a couple of times, just around who the villain is. And horror does this a lot where we, you know, we put the viewer in the position of the killer or the villain. And it serves to be this kind of reflection on ourselves, the evils that frighten us. So, you know, we have the capacity to have those things inside of us as well. On one end of the spectrum, it was a budgetary reason. Let's do this rather than create a monster. But then the other side of that is it actually is really interesting on like a psychological film analysis level. And I think, you know, this film pioneered that maybe in a way. I'm trying to think of earlier examples of it, but I feel like it pioneered it for things like Jason and Michael Myers using it in later decades. Because I think what makes Michael Myers scary, it's, you know, there's a lot of things that make him scary. But when we have those POV shots, it sort of reminds us that we could be him. It sort of reminds us like we have evil inside of us. We have things that would tempt us to do bad things. And that is the crux of what makes that point of view shot in horror so interesting to me. Definitely. Yeah. I echo everything Ali said, really. I think it's really effective. I think it's effective in this film because it leaves everything a little bit more up to the unknown in terms of seeing what this thing is, but also, yeah, somehow putting us in the perspective of some of these monsters can, you know, add to that kind of feeling of discomfort opening scene of Halloween is, is probably one of the most iconic sort of POV shots in horror. But I guess that even came after some of the really famous examples like Peeping Tom in 1960. I think that's probably one of my favourites because this is the story of a psychopath who stalks women with a camera and murders them on camera and then kind of watches his footage back. And there's all kinds of interesting stuff you can talk about with that film. But this idea that film is voyeurism. There's something of us in these kind of monsters that watch people and stalk them and watch them suffer. It's an interesting thing that we as audience members kind of have to reckon with. We've gone analytical this episode. Who'd have thought on It Came From Outer Space? <laughs> there you go, in the least likely place. I would feel a little guilty wrapping up and not mentioning The Day the Earth Stood Still, which came out two years before this movie. And a lot of parallels thematically and I think most importantly in the overarching message that for those that aren't aware, The Day of the Earth Stood Still is, is another sci-fi of aliens coming to Earth. And it's basically discovered that the aliens aren't violent. Instead, they've been sent there to deliver a message saying that if you continue on this course as a race, you will be obliterated. You, you, with all this nuclear power you have, you're just going to, you're not, you're not going to survive long term. So as aliens, we say, join us, live in peace, we'll help you set you on the right path and this is also i would say may maybe the biggest sci-fi from this decade and it's fascinating to have not one but two and undoubtedly more films with this message actually not that oh aliens foreign threat bad kill the message is actually a lot more um cerebral well, it just kind of underlines the point that horror filmmakers are usually the smartest and nicest and most progressive people that work in the industry. Amen. <laughs> and that most of the time their horror films are about actually really humanist values and themes. I mean, we're not biased at all. <laughs> That's the gospel. We kind of got sidetracked with the kill count. But oh, yeah. I... <laughs> so was it, just, was it just one? To my count, yeah, I think so. Did I miss one? Um, doesn't Fields' doppelganger die as well? Does she? She gets thrown into the cavern. 
Shit, she does. She does. Dan, you had one job. <laughs> sorry, I was so focused on film theory and history. I'm sorry. Okay, two. We're at two. <laughs> Makes no difference. Dan still wins the point. <laughs> <laughs> you got you got close though, Mike. Damn it. Usually I go too low, but there you go. Both me and Ali went too high this time. What's important is that we had fun. It's true. Exactly. You both sadly do not get the point. The point goes to moi. The scores, as always, I do not know. <laughs> I think we should make a leaderboard going here. Does anyone know? We. This is what, EP9? I think... I, I might be wrong, but do we have three three each at this point? You might be correct, actually, Mike. I feel like we need to, in the beginning of episode 10, our season finale, we need to figure out which <laughs> who has what points. <laughs> have we decided what the winner gets? Do they get anything? Is there a prize? No. Pride. <laughs> okay, we'll go we'll go with pride. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Let us know how close you came to guessing the correct kill count for It Came From Outer Space. If you want to chip in with any hot, tasty film theory zingers, please contact us on Twitter and Instagram at KillCountPod. Thanks again. See you next time. Kill Count Podcast is hosted by Dan Yakuno, Mike Munzer, and Ali Penelope. Produced by Jake Cunningham, Jake Yard, Ali, Dan, and Mike. Edited by Jamie Maisner, Charlie Grace, Joe Bond, and Ogna Dereshkevichuda. Artwork by Ogna. If you're an OG fan, you're still here because you know what's coming. It's a horror haiku from Ali. All right. Are you ready? So ready. I'm ready. I want to get one. I wrote this this morning. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, guys, this one's fairly easy. But I felt like it would be appropriate. Well, we'll go into it, why, why I chose this one. So here it is. One dark summer night, friendship bound by a secret, but who will survive? Fuck's sake. Interesting. Mike, do you know? I feel like there's a few things this could be, but the, the one that came to my head instantly was I Know What You Did Last Summer. Oh, Mike, you got it right. Yes! Right, well done, Mike. I felt like as we were moving into June, I wanted to do something summery and I couldn't think of anything better than I know what you did last summer. <laughs> can, can I hear it again? Can you share it again? Yeah, of course. One dark summer night, friendship bound by a secret, but who will survive? Oh, it's lovely. That's really nice. It's obvious now that you know what the title is. Yeah, I threw in summer. That's the giveaway. Because it could be a lot of things if the word summer wasn't in there. Yeah, that's right. Very nice. I mean, that could just be the tagline to the movie, couldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I think we should start introducing haikus as taglines to movies. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.